Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now it's time to listen to this week's message. Well, it's an awesome privilege and honor to stand before you. If you didn't receive a message card when you came in this morning, you can raise your hand right quick, and uh, somebody there in the back will help you out. Of course, you can find this message on the YouVersion app if you want to open up uh, your Bible app on your phone. Just click events, and you'll see Dwelling Place Church there in front of you. But uh, what an honor and privilege it is always to get together and uh, study God's Word. We found that as we study the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, the sum and substance of our ministry is Christ. And then what happens is it doesn't just change the way we think, but it changes the way we live. Our behavior flows out of our belief. And uh, I see a couple of new faces. If I hadn't had the opportunity to meet you, just want to say what a privilege it is to have you worship with us. We've had an amazing weekend. If uh, you were on our marriage retreat, let me hear from you right quick. Yeah, so that means it was good, all right? That was really, really good. And uh, if you missed it, we don't want you to miss 2018 uh, we'll do this again. This is our second annual marriage retreat. You'll see a couple images on the screens behind me. Uh, but just a lot of fun, lots of games, uh, lots of interaction, a lot of laughter, a lot of joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And uh, this is what God wants us to experience in the marriage relationship. And uh, you're seeing some funny images of a game called Reverse Charades. But uh, a lot of tears, uh, a lot of marshmallow throwing. Um, for those who are apart, we did throw marshmallows. We got a marshmallow fight at the fire on Friday night. And uh, Trent hit me in the side of the ear. He hit me right in the ear. Or somebody did. Maybe it was... I got hit in the face with a half-roasted marshmallow. You know how nasty that is? A half-roasted. It was really sticky. And, uh, but it was just an awesome, awesome weekend. And uh, we thank God for all that he did. And um, I'm going to continue to do even this morning. We are uh, preaching a message this morning that I'm entitling Fight Fairly. I want you to say that with me. Say, Fight Fairly. Say it a little louder. Say, Fight Fairly. If you got a Bible, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5 with me. We're going to look at the great Christian constitution called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. And uh, that's where we'll look in just a few moments. But um, I want to talk to you about fighting fairly. And to do so, i got two bonus scriptures for you. They're not in your notes. They're not in your note card. These are extra verses. Uh, the first one's going to bring some excitement to the men. And if we have any men in the place, could you give me a grunt really, really loud right now? Uh, somebody barked. <laughs> so, Proverbs 27, 15. Men, this one's for you. You ready? Word of God says, A quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping on a rainy day. <laughs> a quarrelsome wife is as annoying as a constant dripping on a rainy day. And all the men said, don't say it. A quarrelsome, nagging, manipulative, critical wife. She's like a drip. It's like a Chinese water torture. Drip, 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 Now, ladies, unless you feel out, this next verse is for you. Ready? The scripture says, It's better to have severe hemorrhoids than to live with a husband who's a jerk. That was 2 Craig 4 and 2, okay? I just made that one up, all right? 2 Craig 4 and 2. But I had to give that to you, all right? I had to make sure that we know up front that we're, we're talking about both parties. We've been in a series called called in the ring, okay? How to build a relationship worth fighting for, not just talking about um, a relationships, of friendships, but also the husband and wife relationship. And um, many of you, how many of you, you've ever fought about something with somebody over something very stupid and insignificant? Come on, let's just be honest, all right? Um, raise your hands if that's you. 
Okay, anybody get in a fight on the way to church? Okay, today. Right, yeah, and you're sitting there by yourself, right? Our most famous battle in the, the history of the Mossgrove clan, um, of all things, has been a battle around pancakes. Now you're thinking, pancakes? Well, you've got to understand, I, I, don't, I haven't eaten pancakes since I had a change in diet since around Christmas, but I used to eat pancakes, and when I say this, I... I don't mean I'm a pancake connoisseur. I'm kind of a pancake to the top level of whatever that could be. I ate pancakes every day of my life from about kindergarten until I graduated high school. So my mom was up at 5.45. Our school started at 7.15. By 6.15, pancakes were ready every morning. I had an amazing mom. No Pop-Tarts, no cereal. She was an amazing, sacrificial mom. So I've eaten pancakes my entire life. And for my wife, the reality is my wife, Meredith, although perfect in almost every way, she was raised in a very dysfunctional pancake home. And um, very dysfunctional. She has absolutely no bearings or understanding whatsoever as it relates to the pancakes and about how to really make. And so all of you who are maybe skilled in the spiritual gift of pancake making, like myself, you understand very quickly that when you get the griddle, you always do thin batter, very thin batter. You don't go to like the pancake house in Gatlinburg and say they're good when they're really thick because the syrup can't get down into the middle of it. Plus, the butter doesn't saturate the whole thing. That's not what you want. You don't go to Cracker Barrel and you get the really thick maple syrup. You get Aunt Jemima Butter Light, not Butter Rich. And this was many, many arguments early on in marriage, I'll just be honest with you. And so I'll never forget one of the first ones, to griddle up high, you get the pancake, pancake batter really, really thin. They should all approximately be the same size, okay? And you make multiple ones at one time. And You know, I kind of feel the spirit in this place even as I talk. And then you turn them over quickly and you make these four at the same time the exact same size, right? And my wife, on the other hand, she makes, you know, although I love her and honor her, she makes these wheat flop stuff that's like this gloopy thing, you know, and it's, and it's really thick, and she turns it over before the bubbles are on top of it, and so like half the pancake breaks apart from the other half. And it's just, I mean, it's really, really bad, okay? And then they get cold, and, and she pulls out some kind of health. I'm, not, I'm all for health, but not when it comes to pancakes, you know what I'm saying? She pulls out some kind of health kind of syrup and does these things right in front of me. And as she was making them, we were newly meds, and I'm like, you're not doing that right. And she's like, what do you mean I'm not doing that right? I'm like, you're not doing that right. And she's like, yes, I am doing it right. I'm like, would you just please move over? And she's like, I'm not moving over. And I'm like, would you please move over? And she puts her shoulder down like in a football position and knocks me out of the way to which I said would you please get out of the kitchen now $800 of marriage counseling later here we are you know uh, but but I never forget that we started this stupid seemingly insignificant art, uh, you know argument because um, one other time she didn't break the spaghetti noodles I don't want to take out a fork once they're done and have to cut up the spaghetti noodles for 35 minutes you know what I'm saying I want them broken before you put them in the big pot of water that's just the only way we grew up and so I never forget no joke early on in our relationship it became a big fight one night about spaghetti noodles of all things right here's the reality the reality is that all couples will fight. Why? Because we're sinners and our sinfulness leads us to do sinful things. All couples fight, but here's what we got to understand. Healthy couples fight fair. Unhealthy couples fight dirty. They fight below the belt, what we call jabs, undercuts, accusations. Healthy couples, you ready? Fight for resolution. Unhealthy couples fight for victory. 
major difference. In fact, there's a fascinating study you can read right now about a guy named Dr. John Gottman, G-O-T-T-M-A-N, who's kind of a marriage specialist. He's, he studied couples who fight for 16 years. That's his part of marriage. And, and he watched them and he studied how they fight. And now he can watch a couple, he says, for only five minutes and determine within 91% accuracy whether this couple will make it or divorce. That's according to his stats. 91% accuracy within five minutes of fighting. I will determine whether or not they're gonna stay together for life or divorce. And whether they do this or not is because he says it's completely in the marriage relationship about how you fight. How you fight. Not whether or not do you fight, not whether or not do you have conflict, but it's how you fight. So we're gonna seek God and we're gonna fight fairly. We're gonna look at the scripture and see what God's word says about fighting fairly. Now, many of you, you've probably seen this on Pinterest or Facebook before. The, a great quote says, five things you can't take back. A stone after it's thrown, a word once it's spoken, an occasion once it's missed, an action when it's done, and a time once it's passed. My mom got me this incredible gift called the Rocket Book Wave. If you've never seen this before, this is an intelligible, re, re, um, reusable notebook. And uh, essentially what happens is it has a special pen and um, I'm waiting because I have a stack of sermons that if uh, I handwrite all my sermons, I've done that for the last 12 years. Although John Wesley did say, once every seven years, I burn all my sermons for if I can't preach better after seven years, then I don't deserve ever to get back in the pulpit again. But I've saved all of my sermons, and if you stack them, they're no joke, probably about right here. I've always waited for the invention of someone who could scan them, and it turns them into typewritten Word documents. Because I don't want to scan them in PDF, but this, my friends, is a game changer. So this notebook, you actually write on with a certain pen, you just download the Wave app on your phone, and then what you do is you take your scanner on your phone, you scan that, and then everything written on this page goes into a document, goes into a PDF document. Coolest thing about this is that you take this, you put a, a cup of water in your microwave, and then you take this once it's full, and you just put it on one minute, and the steam from the cup actually clears the pages of every one of this in the notebook. So you open back up, and you can reuse this for life. But here's what I've learned in marriage. Many of us wish... That was the reality for our words. We wish we could just microwave. We wish after we've already spoken words, after we fought unfairly, that somehow we've bought into the lie early on in life that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. No, sticks and stones won't hurt near as bad as words. The power of life and death are in the tongue. We're gonna talk about healthy dialogue. Things related to conflict in relationships. This is not just marriage, this is friendship. Well, well, Pastor Craig, we don't have conflict in marriage. Well, listen to me. I don't care what you call it, okay? I don't know what synonym you'd like to use. But as long as there is more than one option in life, there will always be opportunity for conflict. I'm pretty sure that there aren't two people on the entire planet who see everything in the exact same way, which means you can call it disagreement, you can call it fighting, you can call it conflict, you can call it an argument, you can call it a discussion, but we all know what we're talking about when we get to that place of disagreement in the relationship. So this week we're going to talk through what I'm just calling, I don't know how to say it, 10 rules of engagement. 10 rules of engagement. Another way I could say that is, Ten rules of healthy conflict and healthy discussion in marriage. Now, to do that, I want to look at Matthew chapter 5. This is the great Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaking. I, you say, that's a kind of an odd scripture. It seems random, but stick with me. I saw something this week that I've never seen before out of this passage. Now, historically, because I've served under pastors who, who kind of, 
he has an international ministry, but he also kind of coined the Matthew 5 and 6 because he's a pastor with really louds and God uses him to loud fasting. So he talks about the threefold cord of praying, giving, and fasting. And so I'm often looking at the Matthew 5, 6 and seeing that alone. But I saw something different. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 24. And, and 21 through 24 very clearly categorizes three areas of these commandments. I want you to begin reading with me verse 21, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, you've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, Jesus said, if you're even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. <clears throat> if you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So if you're presenting a sacrifice, we talked about that two weeks ago, at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, not even you against them. Well, I don't care what people think about me. And we use that like, we don't need to worry about what people, you better care about what people think about you because Jesus said if somebody's got something against you, here's his command. He said, go, number one, leave your sacrifice, set it aside at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, then come to me and offer your sacrifice to God. Now, if I were to paraphrase verse 23 and 24 and bring it into the marital relationship, here's how Jesus says in a paraphrase. Don't you dare say you are getting closer to me if you're getting further from your spouse. Don't you ever think that you're getting closer to me, that is Jesus, if you're getting further away from your spouse. Listen to me, anytime I am moving away from my spouse, I'm also moving away from my God. What do you mean, Craig? Well, listen to me, obviously we're not talking about those cases of, of abuse. We're not talking about those cases of infidelity. We're not talking about those cases of biblical case of divorce, which is uh, just gross negligence. Because the enemy of love is not hate, is it? The enemy of love is just negligence. It's just neglect. So I'm not talking about those cases, no. In a godly marriage, though, anytime I walk away from my spouse, I'm also walking away from my God. Because God is not a spectator of marriage, he's a participator. It's two plus one equals three. So Jesus says, if you remember someone else has something against you, go make it right with them and then bring your sacrifice to me. So here's how I saw it. Three categories of these three verses. The first one's out of verse 22. Verse 22, he says, you must not murder. You must not murder. The way that I would categorize that group would be watch your words. Everybody say, watch your words. The second one, he goes on. He says, uh, I say if you're angry with someone or if you curse someone. Notice he said if you call someone an idiot. That's the verse 22 we see. Verse 20, the, the, the second part of that. He says if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. The way I categorize that, categorize that one is no cheap shots. Everybody say no cheap shots. I want to really hammer that one in a minute. And then verse 23 and 24 he gives us what I call simple strategies. So say use simple strategies. What do you mean, Craig? It's common sense. He says don't seek to sacrifice to make something right when you have something wrong in a relationship. He says go make it right horizontally and then bring me the sacrifice. It's just a simple strategy God gives. So we're going to go through a lot of scripture we're going to go through a lot of stuff, so follow on in your card. I couldn't even put all the scriptures this week. I just put the references. You can follow along on the screen as well, or they are loaded on your phone if you'd like to look there. So let's look through the 10 rules 
of engagement. First category is going to take care of the four of ten, and that comes under category one. Watch your words. Watch your words. Here's number one. You should control your volume. You should control your volume. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 1, I love this passage. He said, a gentle answer deflects the anger, but harsh words make tempers flare. Has anyone other than me ever been tempted to go from like a 2 on the volume scale to like a 20 just like that? Is it only me? Is this a preacher man? You've gone from a 2 to a 20. I mean, and, you, and you, if you've ever thought about it, I, I thought about it a lot this week. What makes you feel the need to increase the volume? Let me give you a secret, all right? I'm going to help you out. If your spouse begins to raise the volume in an argument, 99% of the time it's because they don't feel like they're being heard. They don't feel like they're being heard. They, don't, they feel like it's falling on deaf ears. So next time you catch yourself raising your volume in an argument to an unhealthy level, take a step back. This takes great self-discipline, but take a step back and ask yourself, what are they trying to say? Or maybe if your volume is raising, what are you trying to say? Because listen, here's the reality. We've begun to think in our culture for some reason, the louder I get, the better point or the better the point I'm making. Let me put it to you a better way, and I hope you never forget this. You ready? The louder we get, the further we get from progress. The louder we get, the further we get from progress. See, the problem with increasing my volume in discussion is this. That if I'm, I'm increasing my volume every time I think I have to make a point, what I'm doing for my household, particularly my children, especially my children, is I'm setting an unhealthy precedent that if I'm going to make a point in the Moscow of residence, I must do so loudly. That if I want my point to be clear, then I'm going to have to raise my voice to make it happen. And when we yell and scream, here's what happens. We don't even listen to what's being said. The moment we start yelling and screaming, we immediately get off topic and start arguing arguing about something that was not the source of the argument. It's always the case. The louder I get, the more I get and the further we get from progress. Another practical way I was telling at the marriage retreat this weekend is whenever you're in some type of disagreement or emotional distress and you're going to your spouse to communicate it or a friend to communicate it, always try to get a change in grammatical language. And if you'll get a grammar lesson and not use you do this, but I feel this way because of something, it immediately disarms that person from being defensive. So you do this, you did that, you did this in the kitchen. The moment we come to, to express what the spouse has done, we start saying you, which immediately puts them in defensive. But if you say, I feel this way in our marriage because of, it's a whole different approach, entirely different approach. But you got to watch your volume. Rule number two, you should always be honest. You should always be honest. Now, admittedly, some of us, we get into fights because of our honesty. I'm going to talk about brutal honesty in just a minute. But look what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. I love this text. He says, instead we will speak the truth in love. Everybody say truth in love. Come on, say truth in love. Growing in every way more and more like Christ. We're speaking the truth in love and growing more and more in every way. Not just one way. We're holistic disciples who is the head of his body, the church. The body of Christ, the church. Say in love. Now honestly, 
honesty involves truth speaking in love. I've told you before, if somebody has to preface their conversation with you, I'm just speaking the truth in love, typically they're not doing either. Typically. It's not always the case, but if they have to preface it, I'm going to speak the truth in love, typically they're not doing either. Speaking the truth in love is the essence of what honesty is. Have you ever been around someone who they were just, I don't know how to say it, they were overly honest? And we could use the term even in our culture called brutally honest. How many of you have heard of brutally honest? Now, I want you to think about that a minute. Does that even sound like a good thing? Man, you're brutally honest. Which means, listen closely, brutally honest means you are bludgeoning me with your opinion but masking it as the truth. You're bludgeoning me with your opinion, but you're masking it as if it's the truth. Listen closely, listen very closely. Too many times we say something that is more opinion than actual truth and we make the follow-up statement, what, I'm just being honest? That's called brutal honesty, that's bludgeoning. That's not honesty. What? I'm just speaking the truth. Listen, the truth without love is accusation and that's the devil. You can't say, I'm just speaking the truth. That's, that's what we're at in relationship, right? Is just speak the truth. No, if you speak the truth with accusation or accusatory tone, that's Satan. Honesty is about truth laced with gratitude and grace. Laced with love. That's what honesty is all about. Too many times we say something that's more opinion than actual truth. No, no, no. Honesty is truth, never opinion. Honesty is always truth, never opinion. Honesty is always what God has to say. And brutal honesty, listen to me, will do more to tear down your relationship than just about anything aside from infidelity. At least in my, my marriage counseling. It tears down the relationship. Just that brutal honesty, that sharp tone, that coming at one another's neck. If, Yes, we're to be honest. We know the scripture tells us we're to be honest about how we feel. Spouses, you have the ability to approach your husband and speak at any moment about how you feel. Uh, husbands, you have any, the access at any moment to speak how you feel or what you've experienced. We must in marriage walk in truth. We must be honest about what we see even our marriage. Listen, if my marriage isn't strong enough to bear the weight of the truth that God gave me through that woman named Meredith, then that is not her fault. That's my fault and my problem. Which, by the way, this is why most men in our churches don't have strong discipleship relationships because they don't have good enough, strong enough man relationships that are strong enough to bear the weight of true discipleship. They don't have enough relationship with other men in such a way. If my relationship's not strong enough in my marriage to bear the weight of God's truth coming through the lips of Meredith, that's my issue. That's not her issue. We need to be honest, but listen to me, the time to be brutally honest is not during a fight. It's not during a fight. Because honesty is more about helping. Brutal honesty is just about being harsh. Just about being harsh. Just about getting a point across. And see, when we don't or we aren't completely honest with our spouses, aren't completely honest with our fiance, or aren't completely honest with those that are courting or dating, listen to me. What happens is most of us, if we've grown up with issues of rejection or abandonment or abuse or some area that the inner child is still crying out for help or health, what happens is we live these dual lives. We become compartmentalized lives, right? And then we get in a relationship with somebody and they're loving us. But see, I can only be fully loved to the extent I'm known. So if my spouse doesn't know a part of my life, I can 
never fully be perfected in that area because I can only be loved to the extent that I'm known. And this is what happens. People are like, how did that couple divorce? They've been together for 20 years. Well, they've been together for 20 years, but 19 of those 20, one in the relationship was holding or living a secret life and therefore the other couldn't fully love that individual. They couldn't love them the way that Christ asked us to love. We have to be honest with one another. We have to be upfront with one another. A, lock, a lack of honesty reveals a lack of love. If you won't be honest with your spouse, I promise you one thing, life is gonna get more difficult for that person, more and more difficult. Think about this. It would be like me going home and my wife has a gift, y'all. Maybe your wife has this gift too, but my wife sees things way before you do and she sees things way before I do and she sees problems in tiny fires, particularly in the area of relationships and women. She can see tiny fires and see those things of discernment long before I see them. And if I don't listen to the voice of God through my wife, it's going to make life more difficult for me. It's gonna make it more challenging for me. So if we're gonna be honest with one another, we have to remember something. The truth in love is a sensitivity thing. Did you hear me? Truth in love is not a speak and then aim thing. We talk about in, in hunting, ready, aim, fire. Brutal honesty is fire and don't even worry about aiming. Just shoot it across the kitchen. No, truth in love is a sensitivity thing. It's a spirit thing. So it's when I know that the spirit has afforded me an opportunity with my spouse to bring something up, I can pierce. But I do so in love. It's a truth and honesty thing. Listen to me. If we're gonna be honest with one another, there has to be a sensitivity that accompanies that honesty or otherwise our honesty will never be received from the other spouse. It won't be received. Number three, I can't stay any longer. Number three, one about watch your words. You should pray about it. That seems so elementary, Craig. You're gonna make me get up on a Sunday morning, come to church and tell me that you sh I should pray about my arguments. Well, the reason I feel so led to do it is because so few of us actually do that. How many have actually pray? Look at James 5 and 16. The scripture says, James chapter 5 verse 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. And the earnest prayer of a righteous person, notice it doesn't say the earnest opinion of a righteous person. It doesn't say the earnest, uh, uh, you know, earnest argument or discussion of a righteous person. He says the earnest what? Prayer of a righteous person has great power, and notice what it does. It produces wonderful results. Too many times, we feel the overwhelming need to make our case to our spouses when we actually need to make or take our case to God himself. That's the difference. Uh, if you want a one-liner, Acts 4 tells us whenever we get in trouble, we're supposed to take our issues first to the throne before the phone. But motively, we get on Facebook and blast it out there or text somebody else or get somebody, get allies on our side before we attack the problem. Get somebody on our side first rather than going to the Lord first in, in prayer and saying, Lord, I'm bringing this case before you. Remember, 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 the beauty of marriage is that it's not her versus me. It's not me versus her. It's us together against the kingdom of darkness. It's us against the enemy of our soul. And there's a third party involved in marriage. That's where God is no spectator. He's a participator. There's a third party involved. Can you imagine, folks? Let's just imagine creative for a minute. How many fights we would never get into and would never have happened if we would have first prayed about it? If we would have actually taken it to the Lord before the fight began. Let me ask you a tough question, married folk. 
How come we don't pray more about the fights we get into with our spouse? Can I give you the honest answer? Because you know God will give you something to do. That's why we don't pray about it. The reason most of us don't pray about our fight is because we go to God and we say, you got to do something about her, God. You gave her to me. She's a thorn in my flesh. Pleaded three times, take her away. Now, that part don't translate, 2 Corinthians 12. She's a thorn in my flesh. God, you've got to do something about this situation. Do something about her. We take our problem with our spouse to the Lord, but here's the problem. He brings up the problem within us and gives us homework to do about our own lives and says, no, don't focus on them, focus on you, right? Because marriage causes us to confront not our spouse, but to confront ourselves. Marriage is a mirror. Oh, my spouse is wrong, so I'm going to get divorced and go marry the next one. And then there's the same issues. Why? Because your spouse is not the issue. The spouse is just a big six-foot mirror that shows you yourself. It just shows you yourself. It's just a confrontation with yourself and the things in you you don't like about yourself. So here's how you know you're praying about a disagreement in your marriage. Ready? God keeps giving you something to do about your marriage. That's how you know you're praying about your marriage. Because he's asking you to do something. He's giving you the direction and initiative. We have to pray about it. Why do we have to pray about it? Because we've got to get the third party involved. We've got to get God himself involved. Number four. Leads me straight into number four. You should let him speak. I'm saying you, this is inclusive. We in fights should let him speak. Sometimes when we pray about a fight, we can shut him down before we give him time to respond. But if we're going to have a healthy marriage, we're going to have a healthy marriage, we have to give God room to speak into both of our lives and into our relationship. This is also to be said in our dating relationship. Did you know that you have no responsibility to lead that other person spiritually in the sense of, of headship in a dating relationship. Sometimes young ladies come to me and say, well, my boyfriend's not leading me spiritually, and I'm very careful about that because he's not called in the headship to lead you spiritually. Now, he should spur you on to Christ-likeness and godliness, but he's not called in that way to lead you spiritually. That's not his job as a boyfriend. That's the husband's job. But listen, if you ever get into a relationship or dating relationship and the, hus- the, the dating partner comes to you saying, God has told him or God has told her that y'all should get married... Um, just tell him, I think uh, I have good coverage. I don't think I have bad, you know, T-Mobile coverage here or Cricket Wireless. I think God can speak to me just the way he can speak to you. And if he's not speaking to me, then, you know, you might as well just go on with your bad self, if you understand what I'm saying. Trying to pull the Trump guard, the God card or something. You know what I'm saying? Like, God, in the marriage, you've got to give God room to speak not just to you individually, but also to speak to your relationship corporately. We have to. Listen to Proverbs 18 and 17. The scripture says in Proverbs chapter 18, the first to speak in court sounds right. Moms, dads, put this down because this is a great verse for for dating in in teenage years. The first to speak always sounds right until the cross-examination begins. His words always sound really good up front. Sounds like it's a strong argument. Until the cross-examination begins. What are you saying, Craig? Have you ever gotten into a fight with your spouse 
and you felt like Rocky, I'm talking Rocky Balboa, not, not like the, the Balboa movie. I'm talking about the first five Rockies. You know what I'm saying? The true Rocky. And you are wearing your spouse out. I mean, you are left and right. You feel like you could get on L.A. Law right now. You know what I'm saying? You're thinking, I have never in my life been so good at an argument. And you're just wearing it out. This is one of the most brilliant arguments a person's. You're better than O.J. Simpson lawyer. You know what I'm saying? You, 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 are, you are just amazing right now. And then all of a sudden, just when you start getting prideful, God steps in and he says, hey, Craig, you are a moron. Do you even believe anything you just said in trying to use cross reasoning to get your wife to believe what you want her to believe? Craig, half of what you just said was an over-exaggeration to try to manipulate and get your point across. Listen closely. Anytime you bring out the words never and always, it's always an exaggeration. I call them absolutes in marriage. You always do this. Sure, Meredith, let's get out the calendar right now and let's see if every day I've done this for the last 10 years of our marriage. You ready? And then we start arguing whether or not I'm gonna go get my calendar or her get her calendar. You know what I'm saying? It's not even about the issue that we had started in the source because the moment I use never, the moment I use always, it's always an exaggeration. Always. And it's funny, here's one of the most dangerous things as it relates to our conflict in marriage is to shut off the voice of God. It's to shut off the voice of God to the point that anything goes. And here's how you know God has no room to speak into your marriage. When anything goes. God did not create our marriages to be WWF wrestling matches. You know, Donald Trump's the only president in the history of our nation that's been DDT'd by Stone Cold Steve Austin. Did you know that? I mean, it's pretty amazing altogether right there. Our president, do y'all still wake up some days and you're like, Donald Trump is our president? Does anybody just still do that? It's like, like the guy on The Apprentice is our president? You know what I'm saying? I don't know, I don't know. It hasn't sunk in with me yet. But, but our marriages are not to meant to be WWF, WCW, WWE wrestling matches. If God has room to speak, trust me, when we cross the line, he's going to correct every time. You know what Meredith's favorite, probably one of the favorite things about being married to me is, is how quickly God steps in to correct me. That's healthy. Instead of waiting on him to step in and correct her, which doesn't happen nearly as much. He doesn't step in to correct her the way he steps in to correct me. At least not nearly as much. Listen. We have to give God room to speak. And I know it sounds very elementary to us in this room, but I really wonder, for those of us who are married and for those of us who are preparing for marriage, listen to me. How serious are you right now as a single person about giving God a full voice into every one of your relationships? That's huge. If you're married, how serious are you about giving God a full voice into your marriage relationship? Proverbs 16, 2. By the way, when you're talking about marriage relationship, did you know men listen better to people they respect the most? They listen best to people they respect the most, right? This is why men become in an environment of respect. Women become in an environment of security. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2. He said, people may be pure in their own eyes, but the Lord examines their motives. Listen to me. The best way to end a marital fight is to let God speak. The best way to continue a fight is to turn down the volume on his voice. Real clear. Think about it. Do we really want to fight constantly in marriage? 
I'm not saying you do. Please understand, I'm not trying to beat us up. I'm not saying you do, but none of us wants to fight. There's nothing fun about fighting except making, making up the making up part, but that's a different message, you know what I'm saying? Making up part is really, really fun. We talked about that on Friday night. But no one wants to, no one wants to consistently, constantly fight. That's why he said in Proverbs 16 too, it all seems right in a man's heart, but the Lord examines the motives. I don't only just want the Lord to examine my motives because if I'm saying something that hurts her, saying something that hurts Meredith and Mossgrove, there are times she's just gonna let it happen. Listen, wives, listen, husbands, there are times you're gonna say hurtful things and she's just gonna let it happen. And you don't want that. I don't want that. I want her to correct me, but even more, I want God to step in and correct me. Any husbands, you're willing to say that? I want God to step in and correct me and to speak to my life. Second category, we've talked about watch your words. No cheap shots. Everybody say no cheap shots. Now let me give you a definition of a cheap shot and then I'm gonna give you several examples of cheap shots. Here's the definition of a cheap shot. Whenever you take advantage of a weakness you were supposed to protect or a mistake you were supposed to forgive. A cheap shot in a relationship is whenever you take advantage of a weakness you were supposed to protect in your spouse or a mistake that you were supposed to forgive. Now, admittedly, the longer we're married, the easier it is to see the cracks in the armor of our spouses. The longer I live with someone, I can see their cracks. I can see the crack in every part of their army. And listen to me, armor. Their army. Sometimes it feels like an army, right? God allows us to see those things, and the reason why is not to expose it, but to protect it, right? Ian e. Bounds, in his great book on prayer, his complete book of work on prayer, he said, God does not give us discernment in order to criticize, but gives us discernment in order to pray or to intercede. Well, the same is true in, in our relationship with our spouses. In our relationship with our spouses, God gives us the ability to see the cracks so that we can protect those cracks. Only an insecure person would see a crack in their husband or wife's armor and take advantage of it. Listen, only insecurity would do that. Love would never do that. Love would never take advantage of a weakness in their spouse. We can't take cheap shots. Now remember, I want you to listen to me. I'm gonna give you three cheap shots, but listen to me. Remember, breaking a few of these rules or sometimes just breaking one of them will turn a very healthy discussion in your kitchen to an all-out unhealthy brawl. Sometimes just breaking one of them turns into an unhealthy argument. So how do we not, some of the things we do to not turn into a good, healthy conversation to an unhealthy one. Here's number one, or number five. You should not be historical. You should not be historical. What does that mean? Proverbs 19, 11. Notice what the scripture says. Sensible people control their temple. They are in respect that's even in the marriage, by overlooking wrongs. That's how they earn respect. We all know what 1 Corinthians 13 says, right? We said it till we're blue in the face, the great love chapter for Paul. Love does not keep a record of, of wrongs. Doesn't keep a record of wrongdoings. Now there's two types of lists we are tempted to hold on to, okay? Two types of lists that we hold on to historically. Let me give you the first one. One is the list that I call the ammo in the event of a big fight. It's the ammo list in the event that a true fight breaks out. It's the little things in marriage, relationships, dating, even friendships that we hold on to 
And we don't say anything about them. We just harbor them, write them on our grocery list until we get into a big fight. And the spouse comes to us and the spouse is right. So when our spouse is right and we don't have enough humility, we immediately go defense mechanism, right? If we know they're right and coming to us and we know what they're saying is right, we immediately back up. Some of us, even, even not putting on the character of Christ, still putting on our old nature, we, we even lie in those moments. We try to... Uh, uh, belabor or try to delay the truth for maybe a couple of weeks or months. But, but what happens is we get defensive. They're right. We know they're right. So what we do is we immediately start reaching for this ugly little list and it starts off like this. If we're gonna get real, you wanna get real today? You wanna get real tonight? That's what you're saying right now? So if you wanna get real, well, you know what I can't stand about you? What I can't stand about you is you leave your clothes on our ground in the middle of our floor every single day. I've asked you for the last seven years to pick up your, you, you wanna get real right now? I, I can't stand that you leave the daggum toilet seat up every single time. I've fallen in the toilet 13 times in nine years and I'm so tired of in the middle of the night getting up and having the toilet seat up. Oh, you, you, I'm so tired of you leaving a half-eaten apple next to the sink gathering fruit flies. Right? That's how it starts. We, we start pulling. And we're like, are you serious right now? We're fighting about a half-eaten apple? You ever stopped in your argument like, what are we even fighting about right now? That's what happens when you keep lists. When you're historical. Let me make a statement. If you're struggling with this, here it is. If it is not important enough to bring up when it happened, it is not important enough for me to respond to when you bring it up in a fight. I'll say it again. If it's not important enough for you to bring it up when it happened, it's not important enough for me to respond to when you bring it up in a fight. In other words, if it's that important to you what I'm doing, then address it when it happens. But most of us, most of the time, this is how we know it's not that important. We don't do anything about it when it really happens. We just put it on our list. We don't address it. We don't speak about it when it happens. We put it on our list. We hold on to it. We just sit on it like gunpowder in the Civil War. And then when it, we need it, it's throw down like Charlie Brown. Shooting muskets all over the house. <laughs> Here's another type of list we hold on to, not just the ammo for the big fight. We hold on to the list called the past, P-A-S-T, past. Say, Craig, what does that mean? Can I give you one statement? You ready? It is impossible to convince your spouse that you have forgiven them if you constantly bring up what they did wrong at the most inopportune time. That's not me. That, that's a tall tale sign you have not fully forgiven them. You cannot convince your spouse you've forgiven them if you bring up what they did wrong in the most inopportune time, they won't believe it. It's not seeped in. It's not deep down in your heart. It's not really happened. The past. Listen, what your spouse has done in the past mistakenly is not a bullet for you to refire at them every time you get in an argument. It's not a, it's not a bullet. It's not ammunition. And if you just want to keep judging one another, listen to me, judging one another will not keep them out of what God has for them. It keeps you out of what God has for you. Because judgment severs inheritance. It severs your inheritance in Christ. It doesn't keep somebody that I'm judging out of what God has for them. It keeps me out of what God has for me. It severs. 
So I hold on to these issues. And the Bible says, can I just say something scary here? And this is scary for me. The Bible says in the same way that I judge, I will be judged. Well, can you imagine how scary that is for a minute? If the way I judge is, oh, I forgive you, Meredith, for what you did. But then every time you do something wrong, I bring back up what you did in the past. The first thing I bring up is what you did in the past. Imagine if God judged me that way. Oh, I forgive you, Craig. But the moment you do wrong again, I'm going to bring up what you did yesterday. We're in trouble quickly. It's not fair to judge. It's not fair to be historical. We've all sinned. We've all made mistakes. No one wants to be in a marriage with someone who constantly reminds them of their own mistakes. Those are cheap shots. Number six, you should not be silent. You should not be silent. Now listen, silence is one of the biggest cheap shots in marriage. It is a major, major cheap shot. Ecclesiastes 9.17, I'm gonna read from not the translation, but a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson. He said, the quiet words, not the quietness. I want you to listen to this. The quiet words of the wise are more effective than the ranting of a king of fools. More effective. Quiet words. Listen to me. If your marriage is important to you, you will constantly speak into it. Husbands, if your marriage is valuable to you, you will constantly speak into it. Anytime we use silence, husbands, as a weapon in a fight, it shows we don't care enough to fight through the problem. We cannot give silent treatment. That's the greatest cheap shot, probably communication-wise, in marriage. Come home, cheap shot. I'm gonna be silent. I'm gonna bottle this up. Silence accomplishes nothing in a fight because when one person is silent, what does the other person do? They're never silent too. If one person's silent, the other person's never silent too, ever, in a conflict, even a friendship. When Meredith got married, and we got married, and she, we had to talk through her premarital counseling about how we deal with conflict healthily, and the way she deals with conflict immediately, she wants to get away before she blows up, and I want to chase her down the house and talk about it right now. Well, that's disastrous quickly, because she, she wants to internalize her minute process, and I'm ready to talk about it right there. And so I, knowing that, not being the godly man, uh, I would just chase around the house and continue to ask her a question, particularly if I wanted my point across. So I just keep on asking the question over and over until, until the temper just got boiling. I mean, just absolutely boiling out the top of her head, right? And just, what? Well, no, I want to talk about it right now. Let's just engage it right now. I've, I've since then got a whole lot more godly. All right, y'all pray for your pastor. But, but early on in marriage, it really could be dangerous very quickly, right? Silence, though, does no good. At the movies, when you go to the movies and you sit down and the, the, uh, the pieces of uh, the cubes of ice come down and then the Coca-Cola comes and fizzes up on the screen and then that goes off the screen and, and then that ends. Oh, it comes up on the screen right there. As soon as it comes up the green, it, screen, it says, uh, silence is golden. Well, listen to me. Silence is only golden in a movie theater with crying babies and ringing cell phones. Silence is deadly in your marriage. And you might need to put that on your TV screen at home. It's a killer in marriage. It's deadly. It's not golden. So you got to speak up. Here's number seven. You should not uncover. Should not uncover. Should not uncover. Genesis chapter nine, this is post-world flood destruction. We know that there's only Noah and his wife and three sons and their wives, Ham, Sham, and Japheth, which are pretty cool names. Ham, Sham, and Japheth. I'd probably want to be Sham more than Ham. For those who eat ham, you know that pigs don't sweat. I'll just throw that out there real quick. They don't their whole life. Bacon, just eating their sweat all along. Yeah. Uh, two types of people in this world, all right? Two types, they don't. Did you know pigs never sweat their entire life? All their toxins are fully in their meat. So 
just so you know that. Two types of people in this world. There are those that cover. We're going to be a healthy, holistic discipleship church. <laughs> Dr. Rich, that's a plug right there. Two types of people in this world, those that cover and those that uncover. One of Noah's sons was um, an uncover. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 9, I want you to read it with me. One day Noah drank some wine when he had made and he became drunk and laid naked inside his tent. So Ham, the father of Canaan, saw that his father was naked and went outside and went TMZ on him and told his brothers. TMZ. Then Shem and Japheth took a robe, held it over their shoulders, and backed into the tent to cover their father. And as they did this, they looked the other way so they would not see their father naked. Two types of people in the world. Those that cover, those that uncover. One of Noah's sons we saw was an uncover. And he made a mistake. He took the the mistake his dad had made. He walks outside and he tells everybody about it. Two of his sons refused to use their father's mistake as an opportunity to pounce. Make no mistake about it, husbands. Make no mistake about it, wives. Every time you mock something or someone else, you cut off your own fruitfulness and you surrender your future in that moment. That's what Psalm 1 said. You're sitting in the seat of scoffers. Go read it. Anytime I mock someone else, I mock them, I cut off my own fruitfulness, and I surrender my future in that moment. But what did, what did the other two do? They grabbed a robe, they walked in backwards to cover their dad, because in this moment of vulnerability, in the midst of a mistake, he needed to be covered. So I want to ask you in your marriage and your friendships, which type of person are you related to your spouse and friends? Insecurity is the only thing that will cause somebody to uncover those they love most. The only way you can uncover somebody you really deeply love is is deep insecurity. Wives, have you ever been in a tough stretch of your marriage and you find yourself at a party with close friends and it's a Friday night, music's bumping? Not at the Roxbury. And you're there at the party with your friends and it's just like middle school again. It is always middle school again. The guys get on one side of the house and girls get on the other side. And so you're over there with the ladies and you're just hanging out talking. And then all of a sudden, as they're talking, you're frustrated. You're having a difficult time in your marriage. And before you know it, you catch yourself uncovering your husband with one small story of disrespect and another small dork and another small story. Well, my husband is lethal. Because the number one value for a man is respect. And when you disrespect publicly, there's trouble quickly. There's quickly. We just uncover. I don't know if you know this or not, but if we, if and when we uncover someone we love in front of other people, those people immediately take note of what kind of friend we really are. And they know you'll uncover them at another party. Immediately. We know what kind of character you have. You should not uncover. You ready for a one-liner? If you constantly uncover your spouse, eventually your spouse will stop getting under your covers. Eventually. You keep uncovering someone you love, and eventually the one you love will stop getting under those covers. We have to cover, and we have to protect those we love most. It means even when they're really, really wrong, 
really, really wrong. We still don't uncover them publicly. That's hard to do, I know. So what kind of person are you? Do you get antsy and excited when you see an opportunity to pounce, uncover? Never make public what is meant to be and remain private. Here's the last category. Use simple strategies. Number eight, you should respect one another. You should respect one another. Ephesians 4.29, notice what the Bible says. Ephesians 4 and verse 29, strong text. He says, don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Have you ever listened to one of your children disrespect your spouse? How many parents in here, you've, seen, you've heard your, your, spouse, your son, daughter disrespect your spouse? Seriously, I'm the only one? Okay, cool, all right. So I've heard my children, even at their age, already disrespect my wife. Maybe they said it in a bad way or a mean way or they said something bad and your first response, my first response, and one of the things I'm really working on because number one was for me, the volume thing is, is the biggest failure in our house and our kids have picked up on it now. Now it's time to make a point so I'm gonna make a volume issue and it's horrible. And so I'm working really, really hard right now on Knox's volume. And I'm telling him and trying to teach him, you don't ever raise your voice to another female. Do you understand me, son? That's never how we talk. And I'm trying to get him to understand that. But have you ever been in those situations where, where now your spouse is being talked to in a bad way from one of your children, then what do you immediately do? Don't you dare talk to your mom that way, right? Why, Dad? You do. Why would we treat our spouses in a way that's unfair and not right and call it appropriate and yet if we were to go to the mall and 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 we do that and we call it appropriate yet if I was to go to the mall and we were to see someone do the exact same thing to my wife we would kill them if someone at the mall talked to my wife the way I've talked to my wife I would I would kill him well why is that the case I'll tell you how we've gotten too comfortable in marriage we've gotten too comfortable too comfortable. So use simple strategy, says common sense. Most of us judge ourselves by our intentions, but we judge everyone else by their what? Their actions. We judge ourselves and our marriage relationship by our intentions, but we judge our spouse by their actions. You'll never have to forgive any more or one anyone more than God forgave you. <laughs> You'll never have to forgive anyone more than God forgave you. So we continue to extend forgiveness. Here's number nine. You should not make winning the goal. You should not make winning the goal. What do you mean, Craig? This one may just be here for me and not for you. That's okay. From the onset, Mary and I were very competitive people. <laughs> Every wrestling match, my wife would win with her nails. She just has to grab me, you know what I'm saying? And you know, obviously, I've never hit her, but what I would do is if we got into a wrestling match, and we still playfully get in wrestling matches, no, seriously, like wrestling matches. And so I, I would get her on the ground and hold her down, and she hates it. So I'd grab her arms and get them really tight. And she's claustrophobic. My kids do too, so I kind of torture them still in the evening sometimes. And I just lay them down and hold them really, really tight, their arms, and they can't move, you know. And then I was really, really dirty in our dating days. And one time I got above her and let the spit go down and then sucked it back up, but I never let it drop. I did, that was a bad day, okay. Uh, just, Lord, please forgive me. That was a really, really bad one. But, you know, I would hold really, really tight, you know. Somebody else did that. Marcus, you did that too. I know you did. I'm just kidding. So he was, he was tight. I saw, I saw his wife. I saw Amanda hitting. So I would just hold her down, but she would always get me with her nails, y'all. 
And I have, I'm translucent, so you just touch me and I'm red. You know what I'm saying? I'm bleeding out of my arms, you know. Ephesians 5, 21, look what the Bible says. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Yes. And don't sin by letting anger control you. He says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. I don't know why winning is such a priority. Let me ask you something. I'm almost closed. Is winning every argument in marriage that great of a thing if it causes you to lose your marriage? Fellas, let me ask you a question. Is winning an argument in your marriage that good of a thing if it causes you to lose the heart of your spouse? You can win the argument and lose the heart. Well, we've lost. Is it really winning if it causes me to lose her heart? No, it's not winning. Sometimes we find ourselves losing in several areas of our life, our job, and we become convinced as husbands that the easiest place to win is in our marriage, so we just beat them down verbally. Is that a victory? Is it helpful in marriage to have a win-at-all-cost mentality? No. And guys, how many times have you won an argument but lost the farm? Let me ask this question. How many times, guys, have you won an argument and what it won you was a trophy of a couch that you'd get to sleep on that night? <laughs> Great. If winning in an argument or a marriage is the goal, listen to me, do you understand what that means? It means that your number one priority is causing your spouse to lose. And I don't know anybody on the planet that wants to be married to somebody whose number one priority is that they would lose. And yet winning sometimes becomes that important. Have you ever been in an argument before? And as you're in that argument, you knew what the death blow could be and you could end it fast. You knew what the word was and you don't do it and it just escalates. And you finally drop the A-bomb over Hiroshima. You drop the A-bomb and for a split second, your flesh feels like you have won World War V. And the moment you say it, then you look into your spouse's eyes and you see and realize just how much you lost in those words. Anytime I feel like I'm constantly winning in marriage, newsflash, I'm causing her to constantly lose. Here's the tenth and, tenth and final one. You should finish what you both started. You should finish what you both started. Ephesians 4.26. One of the greatest pieces of advice, we just read it, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. One of the greatest pieces of advice that related to marriage that I could probably give you today is don't ever let a fight finish the next morning. I received the advice and don't ever go to bed angry, but don't ever let the fight that you're in finish the next morning. Listen to me, no matter what you have going on the next day, doesn't matter if you have to get up at 4 a.m., don't fall asleep until you finish what you started. Here's what I've come to learn. Sometimes as a husband, and I don't know, husband, if this you, sometimes I feel like the argument is over from my perspective, but then I look into Meredith's eyes and I realize she doesn't feel like we're done yet. I feel like I'm done, I feel like we're done, but she doesn't feel like we're done yet. And so what I do is now up to me because the worst thing I can do in that moment is to know there's distress and turn my back to her in the bed and look the other way and fall asleep. Because if I fall asleep in that moment, she knows and understands I choose sleep to be more important than her. I choose sleep to be more important than reconciliation. So we make a commitment to fight fairly. We will finish what we started. And sometimes in marriage, we focus more on starting the fight. Well, I started the fight. I don't want to start fights. 
I want to finish the fights. I don't want to stop until we both feel good about what's happened. And here's how we know when we both feel good. Listen, when we feel God saying, finish strong, way to finish, good job, then we know we're both finished. You're in this room and this may be a difficult season of your marriage or dating or courtship or whatever. That's okay. It's okay to be in a difficult season. But my challenge to you is just be a finisher. Don't be a starter. Be a finisher. And what I've learned is the enemy of our soul loves to drain our energy and strength from fighting with our spouse because he knows if we lose all of our energy fighting with our spouse, we won't have any energy for the fight with our spouse against the kingdom of darkness that attacks our home and our children. He knows that, so he gets us to fight against each other to expend energy. And when my wife falls asleep at night, I don't ever want her to see me as the enemy. I want her to see me as the man who will stand up against the enemy so long as we both shall live. That's how we fight fairly. Again, thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at www.dwellingplacemovement.org.